St. Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that the man Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. What does this mean for all those people who have never heard the gospel message? Or what about those who have heard, our friends and family, who have rejected the gospel, rejected God? But there's another topic in this passage. How did St. Paul understand the relationship between God our Savior and the man Christ Jesus? And what does it mean that the man Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and us? This is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture, this new edition of the Deep in Scripture program. It's good to be back on these uh, weekly Scripture studies, and, uh, and you'll hear us on, of course, EWTN, as well as the Coming Home Network website. Uh, in fact, I'd like to remind you that this program is directly connected to a website, deepinscripture.com. If you go to that website, you'll see that there are over 250 former Deep in Scripture programs that you can download and listen to. You can also connect to a forum where others are discussing the topics that we bring up during this program. But especially, there is a direct email. If you have any questions or comments about anything we discuss on this program, we would love to hear from you, and we'd love to answer your questions on future Deep in Scripture programs. This is Marcus Grody, your host for this program, and I'm joined today uh, as usual, by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Uh, Ken is uh, the resident theologian for the Coming Home Network. He's a, a former seminary and college professor, was a Presbyterian pastor, and he's author of many books, including several books on the early church fathers that we publish here in CH Resources. Welcome, Ken, to, Journey, to Deep in Scripture. Thank you, Marcus. It's great to be back with you. I was, we were joking before the program. We're doing another verse this week from First uh, Timothy. You probably should have just done a whole study through the letters of Paul to Timothy <laughs> True. to get the whole context. But this particular passage that we're going to look at today is is rich in uh, very optimistic and positive, uh, optimistic positive message from God to us. But it also has some conundrums in it that I want us to look at today. Let me read the passage first for our audience. And then, Ken, if you would, begin by pointing out the beauty of what St. Paul is telling us in this rich passage from his first letter to Timothy. So today, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. St. Paul writes, This is good. And it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony to which was born at the proper time. You know, Marcus, this passage I think is... Um gives us a, a, a positive and uh, really challenging prescription for what it is to, um, to pray and to know that we pray in 
the one God. Uh, the verse that actually goes on just after the ones you read, it says, Paul says, for, uh, for this purpose, for this gospel, I was set as a, a herald and an apostle and to be a teacher of the Gentiles. So the question comes up, well, what is Paul teaching us? Well, at the beginning of this passage in chapter 2, he's urging us to pray, to make prayers and entreaties and thanksgivings for all men, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness or piety and, and seriousness. And then he goes on with the passage that you read, it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Um, the reason that he tells us these things is because he wants to realize that our prayer should be rooted in the reality of who God is. And he goes on to tell us who God is. He tells us first that of God's desire. God's desire is for all men to be saved. In other words, God is a Catholic God. <laughs> By that I mean he has, a, he has a universal interest in all of humanity. But that that same God who has a universal uh, salvific will is only one God. And that God can only be approached through the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. And the beauty that, that uh, of the way Paul ends this short passage is to remind us of Christ's self-giving love. He says that he is a ransom or he's a payment uh, for all. So the, the, the overall positive message is that the prayer that Paul is calling us to do, particularly prayers of intercession, is rooted in the reality of, of who God is. It's fascinating to put this context in historical context of the early church in the sense, uh, Ken, that this is assumed to be one of Paul's final letters. Mm -hmm. And he's already written Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and all these other letters, we presume. Uh, but towards the end of his ministry, as he's uh, either on his way or in Rome, He's writing a more personal letter, not one that was intended to be written to an entire church, but to his his assistant, the bishop that he converted and ordained and appointed to the church at Ephesus. Um, and it's a personal letter. And, and it's also written, you know, what, maybe 30 years, we assume? <clears throat> Uh, yeah, about that. Mm -hmm. After the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the Gospels have been already penned and and sent forth. Um, and so we put this reflection in the midst of a growing first generation of Christians who are, many of whom are Jews, who've now had to have their entire Jewish theology updated to understand what it meant in the light of this man Christ Jesus and who he was and what he did and what his death and resurrection means for us. And so that's behind this. All the different questions as well as the Gentiles coming from their pagan background converted to the Christian faith mm -hmm. and all their myths and then the yes, God, exactly. you've got the, the, the man Christ Jesus, all that brought in. And then what I would also say is with that in the background we don't think written yet is the Gospel of John, in which John ref makes 
uh, a comment very similar to this whole passage, but expressed slightly differently in which he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Addressing the same issue, God our Savior, the man Christ Jesus, the one mediator for all people. Well, it's wonderful that you bring in John 3.16 because what became clear in the um, decades after our Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven as the apostles went out, as the disciples went out and spread the good news, what became clear was that God's salvation was not just for the Jews. And you remember that there's stories in the New Testament, like Peter and the the vision about Cornelius and eating things that were not permissible for for Jews to eat. The story there is that, that God, that we should not call unclean what God calls clean. And there was a tendency uh, not 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 commanded by God, but a tendency perhaps for those first Jewish Christians to think of the Gentiles as being somehow below them or or less worthy of God. And the the beauty of the gospel message is that this message is for everyone. And it is and that's why he stresses that God's desire is twofold. One, that all be saved and that they come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, in a way, you could sort of uh, reverse those and think of this, but by coming to a knowledge of the truth, one is going to be saved. And so in, in, in this passage, um, what we're beginning to see, or what we do see, is this, awi- this awareness of how universal and extensive God's love and salvation is. And when you look at the history of Christianity, the history of, of the Catholic Church and, and even other churches um, throughout the 2,000 years, you see the enormous um, motivation that has been uh, taken from a passage like this. I think, for example, of Africa, where at the beginning of the 20th century, I think it was estimated that there were no more than than uh, a million or, or maybe at most 10 million Christians. Now, there are over 300 million Christians, uh, Catholic and Protestant, in on, on the continent of Africa. And it's because both Catholic and Protestant forebearers in the 19th century went to Africa in the belief that they needed to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That verse 4 that you brought up, um, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You're saying you could look at that either way. It's interesting in reflection on, I think it was St. Anselm, that gave us this um, uh, quote that, you know, faith-seeking understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what comes yeah. first? Is it understanding yeah. and then faith? Do I got to understand it all before I believe? Or is mm-hmm. it the grace to believe that opens our mind and our heart to then be able to understand the depth of Scripture. And we almost see that in the order here. God desires all men to be saved. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the faith that we receive by grace that changes us, so then allows us to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in essence, we kind of almost see that journey of conversion in that passage. Now, Ken, there's so much in this passage. It's a, gr- it's a great passage uh, to reflect on, uh, but there are a couple of issues uh, themes that we can try and focus on today's program. 
uh, I think there's three that we see there. What are those, Ken? Well, one is the one that we've already introduced, and that is that the um, the will of God with regard to all men. Um, most Christians throughout history believed in, in what we could call the universal salvific will of God, that is, God desires all to be saved. However, there are some, and they've been very influential in, in the Western world, particularly in America, uh, Calvinists, who, um, who have a very... Um, limited view of that and um and and so that question is certainly there um the other question that's interesting here is when it says that there's there's one mediator between god and man and he stresses it the man christ jesus and that raises the question that was struggled with in the from the fourth way to the end of the fifth century and that is what is the relationship between god the father and Jesus Christ, the man, and is that a relationship of equality or subordination, whatever it is, and that's the issues that uh, were brought up in the Arian controversy in the Trinity, and then all the way to the Council of um, of Chalcedon in four four fifty one, um, and then the third issue that is here uh, has to do with the statement, and Paul says here that there's one mediator between God and man. Um, we're not unaware of the fact that many, many Protestant Christians have thought of, um, have thought that this excludes the possibility of the intercession of, of angels or saints and so forth, um, that, that there really is only one mediator, and that means that there's no other. Um, whereas Catholics see this passage as teaching that all mediator all our human mediation goes through Christ. So that's the third issue that that comes up in this. I mean it really points out Ken that in such a beautiful passage uh that Paul wrote to his his friend Timothy that I doubt if Paul you you wonder whether Paul realized how many different interpretations would come from this <laughs> simple passage and that Sadly, that behind this passage is the message of God's love for every yeah. single yeah. person that he's created, yet it's these three issues from this very passage that have caused the divisions of Christians off and on for 2,000 years. Not just one Christian from another, but continual divisions because amongst our, our baptized, separated brothers and sisters, uh, they are divided between themselves over the True. issue of Christ's mediatorship, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and whether indeed Christ's ransom was for every individual. Um, and these are heated topics. Ken, let's take another a quick break, our first break. When we come back, let's look at that first subject on the issue of whether Christ died for every single person. We'll, be, we'll attack that. Let me get back. Dr. Howe has two wonderful books on the early fathers. They're both translations as well as theological commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, they were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. His second book is on Clement of Rome and the Didache. And the letter to the 
Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache are two of the most important documents from the early days of Christianity. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. In a time when Christians everywhere are seeking a greater visible unity of faith and order, these documents provide rich food for thought. If you're interested in these books by Dr. Howe or would like to purchase them, please go to chresources.com. Thank you. Well, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And again, just remind you, if you go to deepinscripture.com, we'd love to have your comments or questions about this passage or other passages uh, that we'd like to talk about on first uh, future programs. Ken, we, we mentioned three themes that um, have been debatable and even confrontational themes from this very small section of Paul's wonderful letter to Timothy. The first is the question. It seems to say simply in verse 4 that God our Savior desires all men to be saved. In verse 6, that the man Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. It seems clear enough. But you and I both know from his history that there are Christian traditions who had to fudge on those verses and, and because they, they wondered whether uh, the, the ransom death of our Lord Jesus, uh, which was complete and sufficient, um, whether it, the merits of that death and resurrection applied to the lost. And specifically, we're dealing with pretty specifically Calvinism, um, and may I say five-point Calvinism. I was a, a Calvinist, and I have always jokingly said I wasn't sure I was a five-point Calvinist. I might have been a three and three-thirds Calvinist because <laughs> this was an issue that always concerned me. Uh, the word tulip, which describes those five points of Calvinism, which was actually something that an Arminian dropped on Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the middle of that, the L of tulip, means limited atonement that Christ only died for the saved. Hmm. And so what about the lost? What about did God, in fact, choose, elect beforehand men and women who somehow in his his, uh, uh, mysterious will decided that there would be certain people for whom Christ's death and resurrection did not ransom and therefore were not saved by his death and resurrection yeah the um you, you and i both calvinists i probably um, much closer to five than you were <laughs> but at the same time um this this passage does present a perplexing uh truth for them that is if they deny that god intended to for christ's death to pay for the sins of all and they, and in some forms of Calvinism, they do deny that. They think that God intended Christ's death only to be applicable to the elect, to those that will be in heaven. Um, this passage seems to flatly contradict that. 
and Armenian Armenians and others who are um, you know who are opposed to that many Methodists and even and to some degree Lutherans they would deny this this idea of limited atonement um, the reason that that Calvinists argue for the limited atonement view is because they think that <clears throat> if Christ died for someone who doesn't accept him and who is not in heaven, then Christ died in vain. And for them, it's inconceivable that the the will of a, of a man could hold back or contradict uh, the will of God. So they have to come, they have to do some, you might say, some fancy footwork uh, to get around this uh, this text, which says that God desires all men to be saved. I did read one very prominent uh, Calvinist or Reformed theologian who said, no, I take this verse at face value. God desires all the men to be saved, but he hasn't decreed that all are going to be saved. <laughs> and um, that, that introduces a strange notion of God who acts against his own desires. Um, which is a, a very strange notion. Well, can, but this is not the only verse. That, what's that? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, the the conundrum here is, uh, and correct me, because uh, you and I have both read the Institutes, but I think you've got far more brain cells left than I do, so I'm trying to remember the, the Calvin's Institutes. But I think the issue is that with this issue of sola scriptura, in other words, the Bible alone, I'm going to preach what the Bible says. And so here's the passage, you know, and it says this, Yes, but. And so what happened? Was it that for for John Calvin and others that it wasn't so much first scripture, but that it was really more first philosophy? In other words, a philosophical understanding of God as totally sovereign and mm-hmm. man as depraved. And if man is totally depraved and unable yeah. to do anything to please God um, and Therefore, our salvation is tr- totally a work of his sovereignty, which he applied before we were born, predestined. If that's it, that, and that's more of a philosophy, then that becomes the lens through which yeah, Scripture is interpreted. Yeah, it's the, con- it's the controlling uh, method of interpretation or, or hermeneutic. You're right. And... Um, th- what the difficulty that that many Protestant Christians have pointed out to Calvinists, and and we would point out as well, is that not only this passage it says that that in verse six that God or Christ gave Himself a ransom for all, and then another one that uses the word ransom, of course, is the famous passage in in Mark chapter ten verse forty five when Jesus is trying to instruct the disciples about what true leadership is, he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, by the way, that's where the Calvinists say, oh, you see, it says many. It doesn't say all. But the passage, but how shall we understand that? Well, the passage in First Timothy is very clear. It says that he desires all men to be saved and that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. Now it's even more explicit in first Tim uh, excuse me in first John two two, chapter two, verse two, where Paul where John says, and he is the propitiation or the the payment, you might say, for our sins, and not for ours only, 
but for those of the whole world. In other words, uh, the vast majority of, of Christians, including official Catholic teaching, has been that God's purpose in sending the Son of God into the world was to pay for the sins of all. The fact that not all receive him is not due to God's lack of desire for them, but it's due to the fact that they, in their own free will, reject uh, God's offer of salvation. Yeah, I mean, to throw another uh, uh, verse into the, the wonderful list that you've given for audience, I mean, another one in the same letter of First Timothy, uh, back in verse the middle of chapter 4, Paul says, beginning with verse 9, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who yeah. believe. Now, I'd love to have you. You're always, the audience may not know this. I'm reading from the English translation. Dr. Hall always reads from the Greek. You're always translating directly from the Greek. I'd like to know what Paul meant when he said, Who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe? I mean, it seems to lift up God saves everybody, particularly those who are saved, who believe. Yeah, no, I think it's very clear uh, what you read. And, and the interesting connection here to me is that he says that we are we are agonizing, we are laboring for this. And why does he have that that strong language of uh, of wrestling with uh, to to preach the gospel? Because he's placed his hope in God. Now, why has he placed his hope in God? He goes on to say, because this God is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. Well, it's very clear, it seems to me, in that kind of language that uh, this this is saying that, that God's intention is to save all. But, of course, we, we know that those who are already believe are those that are on the path of salvation. So that's what he seems to be saying. He, it's clear that, to me anyway, that, uh, that Paul is teaching the universal will of God, the salvific will of God. It, it, to me, this again reminds us that we are to interpret the Scripture within the uh, the mind of the uh, of the Spirit that gave us Scripture through the Church, yeah. and we see mm-hmm. the mystery on the one hand of God desiring all to be saved, but yet leaving men to be free to respond. It's a both and. It's not just God, but it's man and God. Let's take a break. We'll see you in a bit. This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. 
Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your wings today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined by Dr. Dr. Kenneth Howell. And again, let me remind you of the, uh, of the website, deepinscripture.com. We would love for you to send us an email with questions about what we've discussed, comments. Uh, but also, if you have a passage of Scripture that you'd like to post, pose for us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Ken, as you mentioned earlier, there are two main other themes uh, in this passage that are worth examining, and I'm thinking uh, of the two, we may have to delay one till next week. I think next week we'll look at the issues of the Trinity, the relationship between God the Father, God our Savior, and the man Christ Jesus. We'll look at some other passages. Let's work on that next week, uh, because the other issue of Christ as the sole mediator between God and man, the one mediator. I'd like us to look at that because I don't know historically whether it was immediately in the mind of Luther or whether the, at what point the Reformers attacked the understanding of, of mediatorship. But we know that for the last 500 years, this has been an issue that has particularly divided Catholics and other Christians. And just to, to illustrate that for the audience, I have before me two study Bibles. And the first, uh, I'd like to compare what the study Bibles say about this passage. And to me, this illustrates the, the issue uh, that's questioned here. The first I'd like to read from the Harper's Revised Standard Version Study Bible. This was my preaching Bible that I used when I was a Presbyterian pastor. For this passage, the footnote says that this passage rules out all other mediators, whether angels, saints, priests, or relatives of Jesus himself. None of these has any validity before God. And it makes me wonder what they meant specifically by relatives of Jesus himself. But anyways, that's so that the, the, the Harper Study Bible says that this passage specifically rules out 
all other mediators. On the other hand, I have a copy of the Dewey Rames Bible, and the copy that I have in front of me was published in 1840 by, uh, in Philadelphia. And the footnote for this says, Christ is the one and only mediator of redemption who gave himself, as the apostle writes in the following verse, redemption for all. He is also the only mediator who stands in need of no other to recommend his petitions to the Father. But this is not against our seeking the prayers and intercession, as well as, as well of the faithful upon earth, as of the saints and angels in heaven, for obtaining mercy, grace, and salvation through Jesus Christ. As St. Paul himself often desired the help of the prayers of the faithful, without any injury to the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. What do you think, Ken? Well, it's um, this passage, it's interesting as you put those two uh, commentaries side by side and, and juxtaposed one which said that this passage rules out all other mediators. And clearly the, the Catholic priest who wrote the commentary in the Dewey Reims says, no, this does not. And you have to ask yourself, well, why, why would people come to such radically different conclusions uh, from this? Um, but part of it is clarifying what we mean by a mediator. And the the commentary in the Dewey Reims version that you read, the second one, very clearly does that. Christ is the one mediator between God and man. He is the only mediator that doesn't need another mediator. Um, but that doesn't exclude other kinds of mediation. And the fact that he, or, or that fact, is, I think, borne out by the very context of this verse. If you go back to verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he says that we should pray. We should offer requests and, and, and petitions, uh, prayers and entreaties and thanksgiving for all. In other words, we should intercede for all. And he mentions specifically kings and those in authority. Now, in Paul's time, that would mean people who did not adopt the Catholic or Christian faith. And so he's asking that, he's asking the people, uh, he's asking Timothy and his congregations under him to become these mediators between the pagan leaders and God. His grounding of that, his reason for doing that, is because there's one mediator. So <clears throat> the fact that he says there's one mediator between God and man cannot exclude human mediation because Paul himself is is commending that in, in this very context. And nearly every one of Paul's epistles, he's talking about praying for one another. He's yeah. encouraging the Colossians to pray, the Philippians to pray, and asking them to pray for him in jail. And he tells them he's offering them up to the Father. I mean, so this is, in fact, if you even want to talk in more of another verse that can come across as a difficult verse is when Paul says in Colossians 1.24, when he talks about how he rejoices in his suffering for your sake, and my, for in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So there's that whole passage that talked about that our very sufferings we share with Christ in the offering up of, of these sufferings for the sake of the church. 
Yeah, I, I, that really is a, a fantastic uh, verse to, to parallel to this because this really gets to the heart of the Catholic understanding of Christ's redemption of us. When he redeemed us, he didn't redeem us to leave us, so to speak, out on our own. He brings us into his redemptive plan. Now, he did, and he's the only one who did, the objective facts of the redemption. That is, that it was it was done by him on the cross and the resurrection, the ascension, all of those life events of his, those alone save. But he draws us in as secondary or subjective, um, the, the application of redemption to the world. And we do that through our prayers. We do that through our sufferings, as you pointed out in, in Colossians one twenty four. We do that by giving birth to others in the gospel. And there's a beautiful verse in uh, uh, Galatians 4.19 where Paul says, My children, my dear children, whom I um, am in birth pangs until Christ is formed in you. So what he seems to be, he's sort of using himself as a, um, both as a mother and as a midwife. And he wants to bring Christ to people. He wants to see Christ formed in them. And he's the human mediator who says, I'm in birth pangs. Uh, I'm suffering because I want to see this happen in your life. So I think the, you know, thinking then about the passage in, in Timothy, why does Paul emphasize this oneness? Because he wants to emphasize that all of our prayers have to go through the the prayers and the suffering of Jesus Christ in order to be heard by the Father. Let me bring in the Gospel of John again, because again, the context of the first century, we have the theology that our Lord passed to his apostles, who passed to their apostles, and then sent them forth. We see in in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them all. So the, the carrying forth and the understanding of what Jesus did and said and accomplished, and how we translate that to these people all over the Mediterranean. So we see these, it's not like we have one community has one theology, St. Paul, one community yeah. has one theology, John, right. that we have the same theology. Well, John, in chapter 14, verse 6, passes on the core of what Paul is talking about. In the words of Christ, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I mean, there's the core of what Paul's talking about. It's not that there's many ways to the Father. There's one way to the Father through Christ. He's the one mediator between God and man. He's the one ransom for us all. Jesus himself says it. Paul says it. I mean, John passes it along in his gospel. But that that statement of Christ so fed the early church that as, as the bishops were teaching their people, what does it mean by this? That's where we get these words from St. Paul to Timothy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you were talking about the uniqueness of Christ, it reminds me, and we can get into this next week more when we talk about the Trinity, but what a um, arresting and uh, uh, powerful message it was in the Greek world 
where they had the idea, the Greeks had the idea that if you if you become like a god, you become less human. And if you, and if the gods like Zeus and Poseidon and so forth, if they come down to earth, then they become less of a god. The the powerful proclamation of the gospel was that the man who was fully God, 100% God, was also 100% man. That man alone is the Savior. And that would have been something that would have made people, what, how can you believe such a thing, that God, that someone could be fully God and fully man? And so the, there, there's a, this is still both the, the rock upon which the church is built Christ himself, and it's also the stumbling block, as Pope Benedict rightly pointed out, that Christ, this uniqueness of Christ, is still the central question uh, that men and women have to face. Yeah, the the philosophy behind the idea that emphasizes that only Jesus is the mediator, None other. Oh, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. As I quoted from the, let's take that quote from the study of Bible. This passage rules out all other mediators, whether angels, saints, priests, mm. or relatives of Jesus himself. And what their meaning is Mary. Uh, mm-hmm. None of these has any validity before God. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken, two things. Number one, what is the image of God that we get from that? You know, if that's true, oh, yeah. what is the image of God? And number, and second of all, um, w- w- what does that leave for us to do? If that's true, mm-hmm. what does that mean for for prayer? What does that mean for missions? Uh, what does it mean for uh, you know our sharing of the gospel to our our place in that? Does it only leave us just telling it, and yet we have mm-hmm. nothing more? to apply that for our friends and neighbors? Well, you know, in all of our lives, both, uh, it doesn't matter what stripe of Christian we, we call ourselves, we all have inconsistencies, but some of those inconsistencies, you might say, are deadly. And one of those is that the beauty of many of our Protestant and uh, Christian brothers and sisters, our separated brethren, is that their practice is better than their theology. Mm -hmm. Their practice is that they do tell others about Jesus. They are mediators. Uh, Their practice is that they do pray for people. They intercede with God in behalf of those in need. They're acting in a priestly function by doing that. Um, And they they recognize even the, the reality of angels helping them. Now, their theology, at least in, as manifested in this passage, in this uh, study Bible that you just read, where they say all the other mediators are excluded, it simply isn't true in their practice. And I would, uh, I would say their practice is right. Their theory or their theology is wrong at this point. Because um, a priest, and they mention specifically that, that, that there's no mediation but, uh, through a priest— I would say that a priest is simply uh, that man who's been chosen by God to give God's grace to sinners. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 20, when he breathed upon his apostles and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they're retained. Well, that's simply the act of Jesus authorizing these men 
to be the priests of the new covenant. And so they give grace. But grace can also be mysteriously conveyed just by telling people about Jesus. And our pastor brothers seem to recognize that. If that's the case, well, then why, why, the, why would we exclude these other ways? I remember when I studied missions in seminary, the, um, we had admittedly recognized that different Christian traditions had different theories of why men and women are sent out to, uh, as missionaries, and even to the point whether it's appropriate to send men and women out as missionaries. In the really staunch Calvinists lagged behind other Christian mm-hmm. traditions because of their strong sense that uh, those that will be saved are the ones that God has chosen and Christ yeah. has died for them and uh, God will do that for them. There's no no need for us to go tell them God will convert them. I mean, it was it was bizarre, mm-hmm. as you said. But on the other hand, we also know that in history, you know, great evangelists like Jonathan Edwards, uh, strong Calvinists, yet at the same time recognized that God used us as mediators to other people. They would never know unless we're—I mean, Paul says it himself. How are they going to be saved unless they hear the, through the gospel? How are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? I mean, that's the need to send out a mediator to proclaim the gospel to those that have never heard. You know, Christians in the 21st century, both uh, Protestant and Catholic, um, I don't think they—I don't think we often realize the deep love that was in the heart of these early missionaries. People like Saint Isaac Jobes, Jean Brebeuf, yeah. um, Father Gabriel, who was portrayed in that movie *The Mission* and went down into the jungles of South America. Um, <clears throat> Matteo Ricci, the the great Jesuit who went to China. These people were inflamed by a deep love of God and of people to help people to live the fullness of life in Christ. I wish we could, re- I wish we could revive that some spell well, bring it, that back into the church. And we think of the great um, uh, uh, you know, Protestant missionaries that gave their lives for, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, like uh, Jim Elliott that gave his life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and giving his own life to defend the church and the truth uh, during Nazi Germany, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know the, the Puritan evangelist to the Indians in New England, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we we know that as you said, sometimes the theology is one thing, but it's the it's the call of the heart to share the gospel. Right. I mean, in all the churches I pastored, which were all Calvinist churches. We had strong prayer meetings where people were gathered around, praying for one another, offering their lives for one another. You know, that's being that's simply being a mediator. Well, maybe yeah, it's good right. to explain, though, to our non-Catholic audience, why would Catholics... I mean, it makes sense, okay, I'm going to have you pray for me, and Paul asks the other live Christians to pray for one another. But wait a second, the, the commentator of the Catholic study Bible says that this also, though, does include asking angels and saints and even the relatives of Jesus to pray for pray for us. Well, well, how do we make that leap and open ourselves up to that kind of mediatorship? 
Well, that, that mediatorship um, of other human beings for us is very uh, is not very different whether those people are on earth or those people are in heaven. And the reason is because those people in heaven are not dead but alive. In fact, they're more alive than we are because they're closer to the source of life uh, who is God. Now, that's, that's the, the ground. There's the unity of the church, the church both on earth, that is the church militant, and the church triumphant, as well as the church purgatorial that's on the way to heaven. But let's just talk about the two for a moment. The church triumphant is the church in heaven. These are the people that are with God. They are living the fullness of life. And so they are, and, and if they're living in the fullness of God's love, which they are, then they can't help but love us, their younger brothers and sisters in Christ on earth. So they want to love us by bringing us and commending us before God uh, in the throne. So the, the logic, you might say, of prayer to the saints or through the saints to the Father in a Catholic understanding is because there's this unity of believers both on earth with those in heaven. And they're united with the angels, they're united with all of the, the saints above. And so that's why we <clears throat> would say it's perfectly legitimate to ask for the intercession of of the saints that have gone on before us, uh, as it is legitimate to ask for the, the saints in the making that are here on earth. The, the theology that our Lord used to defend the reality of the resurrection— uh, to the fair, to the Sadducees and to others that were challenging him about the resurrection, was the assumption that Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob were alive, because mm -hmm. the God is the God not of the dead of the living. And so, as a Protestant, I would use those verses to emphasize the, the resurrection. But I'm not sure that I went the next step to re to realize what that's also implying mm -hmm. the the transfiguration. We that's see right. we see Peter, John, and James gathered around Jesus, and there is Elijah, and there is Moses. They are alive. And so when we have always affirmed in the oldest of our creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, which, you know, some traditions say goes all the way back. Uh, to the earliest days of the church, maybe even the, one of the first expressions of the deposit of faith that our Lord passed on to his apostles. In that is the communion of saints, and that's what it applies to, this, this living cloud of witnesses that we see in Hebrews 12. This right. is what's being talked about, and all centered around the one mediator of Jesus, but all through the, through the merciful love of Christ being given the gift of our shared mediatorship with right. him for one another. Yeah, this participation in the redemption of Christ is at the very core of, of of what Christianity is. It's not just that he died for us, but he and which he did obviously, but he died in our place in order to forgive our sins. But he also draws us into his redemptive life. And that's what the Saint Thomas Aquinas and others call participatio or <laughs> Excuse me. Participation, participation in um, the redemption of Christ—that is crucial to our our goal. In fact, I would say that's one of the 
the main reasons why our Lord leaves us on earth is so that we might become, by participation in his redemption, become the instruments of his redemption in the lives of other people. All right, Ken, maybe the last couple minutes, let's <clears throat> set aside uh, uh, combative theology and, and look at this passage again. What are some positive things, some challenging things that we can take from this for our life today? What does it tell us about who we are and what we ought to do for the sake of our Lord and for our the sake of others around us? Well, I, I see uh, in this passage, Marcus, um, first of all, that, that our lives are to be a life of prayer. And specifically, he mentions... Um, He's talking a lot about intercession and thanksgiving. And he's talking about doing it for pagan rulers. Now, um, without going into any specifics, a lot of Christians are beginning to feel very uneasy about the direction of our country, about the direction of the West, and uh, about um, the persecution of Christians that's going on um, throughout the world. So, but but this is a this is a call to action, might you might say, a call to prayer, to pray even for those who hate us. And that has got to be one of the most difficult things in the world to do, to pray for those who hate you or who are persecuting you or who who want to destroy your religion. But Paul gives us the reason why. He says in verse two, that we may live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and um and purity. In other words, the reason why we should be doing this is is so that we can live a life that eventually will win the hearts of others. And I think under underneath the various statements that Pope Francis has made, um, this is one of the things I think he wants us to see, that it's going to be more by our life and the way that we live that will win the hearts of people than it is by you might say intellectual arguments. Now those arguments have to be there. You have to be ready with them. But at the same time, it's by living a quiet and godly life that we are going to win the hearts of people. You know, I was going to uh, say at verse four, again, you know, all men will, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And again, we have this faith that leads us to knowledge. And it reminds me of that passage of the sheep and the goats where where our Lord says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. God desires every single individual person to be saved, to come to the knowledge. And our goal is to not pass judgment in our thinking beforehand, but to cast it all aside and be a channel of love to every single person around us. Ken, thanks for joining us again today. Great to be here, Marcus. Thank you. And uh, on next week's Deep in Scripture, we're going to pick up this passage again and then look at some others and examine the understanding of the Trinity. What is the relationship between God the Father and the man Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit? And where do we get the idea of this three-in-one? I hope you enjoyed this time. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week on Deep in Scripture.